Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Light Body Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lara May, and today I have with us again, David Krantz, a certified coach specializing in genetics and epigenetics, nutritional genomics, and nutrigenetics. David has developed a proprietary genetic test for the endocannabinoid system. He has been a speaker at several biohacking conferences like Body Hacking Con, speaking alongside leaders like David Asprey and William Hoff. And David is currently an advisor to AMMA Healing as a specialist on the genetics of the endocannabinoid system, along with Dr. Dan Eagle from Onnit Labs and other leaders in, I would say, the optimization and personalization of medicine and healing. Wouldn't you say that? I would say that's... Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So today we want to pick David's brain about about psychedelics and their role in healing and specifically in mental health treatment. So welcome back. Thank you, Lara. It's great to be here again. Cool. Uh, So this, I think this is a really exciting field. And I know that it's just coming back into the forefront of both mental health and healthcare in general. So I just want to start with asking you your perspective of why this and why now? Sure. That's a pretty multi-layered question, but (laughs) you know, I think, I think there's two big factors in my mind around the resurgence of psychedelics. Um, First is just the state of society we find ourselves in and the vast mental health crisis that, you know, is upon us. And I say that, I say upon us because I feel like it's very much a collective issue. This is, you know, when we talk about mental health, so often it's talking about individuals having mental health issues. And that's true, but it's a lot of these mental health issues in in our society are coming from larger societal collective issues. I recently heard a psychotherapist I really respect talking about how we're we're not really treating individuals, we're treating Western civilization. You know, we're treating the symptoms of Western civilization when we're talking about things like depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in and of itself has, you know, caused people to say, you know, the tools that we have are not working well enough. So let's look at other options almost out of a desperation. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of things, I think you have the (laughs) illegitimate illegalization of these substances in the first place. You know, when we look at the origins of the illegality of psychedelics and other psychoactive compounds, you know, those things were in a lot of senses made illegal in the beginning because people didn't understand them. There was a, uh, you know, they, they were inherently threatening uh, to Western culture to all of a sudden be allowing people and giving people the opportunity to experience themselves as something that is not found within the confines of, of Western, you know, thought like, you know, these are the psychedelic experience itself is inherently opposed to the Western reductionist materialistic worldview that most of American and Western society is built on top of. Mm -hmm. So there's inherently a disconnect with the quality of the psychedelic experience and kind of the framework that we find ourselves in. And so I, I think that when you kind of zoom out and say, all right, why were these things illegal in the first place, despite, you know, a rich history of indigenous use of, of historical use, and despite a pretty rich history in the, you know, 1930s to the 1950s, 19, early 1960s, of real legitimate solid research in the mental health field to begin with. So I think there's, from one angle, just the, the real need to have something different to, you know, treat what's going on. And we can talk about the 
the subtleties of that a little bit more in terms mm-hmm. of this kind of question of, is this a personal problem or is this a collective problem? Where do those things kind of, you know, link up at me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side, just the the lack of real solid grounding for why these things are illegal and taboo to work with and talk about in the first place. Yeah, so let's start there because let's just give people like maybe a brief background of historically how they were used in therapy before it was made, before they were made like schedule one. And also too, I want to maybe ask you specifically if you're talking about specific substances or if we want to continue to talk about them as a generality. So, and I think getting specific is helpful because things like ketamine are within the, in terms of controlled substances with the DEA classification, that is, I believe, a two, a schedule two, maybe even a three. And, but like things like LSD, for example, are schedule one. So schedule one means, for those of you that are unfamiliar, schedule one means technically per the DEA, no medical use whatsoever, which is also what cannabis is scheduled as currently which is why we have this dance between states and the Fed with its now legalized use in some states. And then you have medical practitioners like myself who we're we're regulated by the Fed. And so there's this question of, well, is it legal for us to use them with our patients? Because the Fed gives me my license and they can say, no, there is no medical use for this, even though we know that's absolutely not true. And so let's take that into the context of these psychedelic substances. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think it is helpful to kind of break them apart and look at them individually, especially when you're talking about ketamine, because it it, it is in its own class in a way as compared to the other more classical psychedelics, which, you know, we're talking about with those LSD, psilocybin, DMT, going to be kind of the the main three Mm -hmm. that we're talking about. MDMA also kind of falls into that category, but it's also not really a classical psychedelic just in terms of the effects. And, you know, in terms of things that are showing efficacy for different mental health conditions, pretty much all of those fall into that category in different ways. And like you're saying, ketamine is a anesthetic, you know, it's been used as an anesthetic drug in surgery. Uh, It's actually the preferred anesthetic but in the military because of its fact acting acting use like on the battlefield as well. But it also has the psychoactive effects that, you know, create pretty intense experiences for people. And there, you know, the ketamine experience is a little bit different than say LSD or psilocybin, but in terms of availability, ketamine, you know, is available through legal prescribers right now for depression, especially. So we want to, you know, highlight that and say there is some ability to utilize ketamine for depression and for other things, but there's a it been a long ongoing battle to get things like MDMA, things like psilocybin available in the, you know, the commonly used treatment set. Uh, and also, you know, there's a lot of research that still needs to be done to to show what's the best way to use these things for whom and and how and But then again, you know, that fits within kind of the Western framework of doing medicine, of of doing research. And I think, you know, when we kind of break this apart, we do want to touch on that, hey, you know, that is only one way to use these substances. And there's, you know, again, like I said, a pretty rich history of these things being used in in ceremony and and in things outside of the Western medical way of doing things that can benefit mental health. And so... You know, it's kind of a tricky conversation, I, I feel like, to have. And and I'll, and I'll say, you know, this is where my mind has been at a lot lately of like thinking about, all right, we're essentially importing a set of sub, of compounds and substances into the Western framework that actually have some precedent in other frameworks. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big dialogue right now within, you know, the communities of that are, are bringing psychedelics into the, um, into, into medicine, like, all right, how, what can we learn from indigenous use of these things? How can we actually, you know, build a bridge to these other ways of using these things rather than assuming the Western psychological framework is the only one that works when we're talking about this? So I feel like that kind of jumped off from the initial question there, but yeah, I'm, I'm no, wondering if yeah, totally you cool. Me yeah, back. so yeah, so just for clarification's sake, for all those out there that are now wondering, like, where are we within this spectrum of the DEA? And you know, so ketamine is a schedule three, 
meaning it does have a what they consider like a medical use, which we already knew. <laughs> and now we are branching it into the mental health field. So branching it out from only anesthetic to now uh, some psychological therapy uses. And then like we just we just explained schedule one, which is the you know the very extreme of restrictions. And so, yeah. Yeah, so the Schedule One drugs are are the the no medical use, and they're illegal. Which you know, of course, it's absurd that cannabis is still Schedule One. Yeah, and you know, psychedelics were not illegal substances until 1968, and right. so I think that's important to consider just in terms of the overall history that when when these things were being studied in the 1950s, and and there was a really big interest in, especially LSD in the 1950s in psychiatry, looking at it for a variety of different purposes, treating alcoholism, depression, all kinds of things. And there were a lot of really positive results from that. Now, a lot of the, at them were not as, say, well-controlled and well-designed as you want in a study going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's oftentimes, a, I would say, more of an excuse than anything to say like, oh, no, there's really not enough evidence to show these things are are helpful. So I guess my next question is like, what's the difference between when they were first used on a quote, we'll call it regular basis in the research field, like back in the fifties and, you know, even earlier than that really and versus now. So we've sort of had this hiatus of absolute prohibition and now we're opening up our minds and the possibilities. And then, and now we are having to lobby the DEA to reconsider for a variety of things like cannabis, like LSD, peyote, for example, is on the schedule one list, MDMA, ecstasy, all of those are on the schedule one list. And I think people need to also keep in mind, and I think this is worth saying, the DEA created their scheduling and assigns the scheduling, especially in schedule one, based on potential and actual abuse in sort of the subculture, in the underground world. And so that's definitely a factor of why they did and do what they do. But there is definitely this conversation within multiple areas of the medical field and the DEA of, okay, well, can there be a happy medium? Can we can we deschedule things to like maybe schedule two, which requires, you know, a certain level of prescriptive authority and monitoring and oversight, but is allowed to be, at least because with Schedule 1, you're not even allowed to technically study it for a medical use. And I think that's where this conversation, too, is sort of happening. Like, okay, well, we know that there are medical uses, so let's stop being so prohibitive and let's allow it to at least be studied so then we can include it more in medical studies and medical treatment and really start to understand it better instead of saying, well, it's abused on the black market, so let's just say no. You know, like, it, yeah. Right, exactly. And the, and the scheduling, you know, it's a conversation between the DEA and the FDA, yeah. uh, you know, which is going to, you know, the FDA is going to be the ones deciding, okay, there is a quote unquote med- legitimate medical use for this. And then that inherently changes the way that the DEA is going to mm-hmm. schedule them and, and enforce it. And, you know, right now, it, 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 MDMA especially is pretty close to that designation of the results from the phase three trials, which, you know, there's three phases of clinical trials. That's something has to go through. MDMA is currently completing its third phase for PTSD and, again, showed pretty dramatic results. I think the phase most recent published results are something like 70% of the participants no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis after a couple months. And it's leagues ahead of comparable treatments, right? So mm-hmm. this has caused the FDA to grant MDMA a, a breakthrough therapy designation, which means it's it's getting moved through the processes faster than it typically would, have, would be without that. And there was recently a, a head-to-head trial of psilocybin for depression versus skitalopram, one of the commonly used SSRIs, Mm -hmm. and found that psilocybin is equal or better in effectiveness versus that. So that's a pretty big, um, pretty big study that just happened as well. And we're, we're, you know, and, and we're in this kind of interesting transition phase where there's enough very promising studies on a variety of different psychedelics, you know, ranging from 
from MDMA to ketamine to LSD. Well, LSD isn't so much in the picture yet because of the stigma. A lot of people are focusing more on psilocybin because it doesn't carry the cultural stigma of LSD. It's easier to research. And like you were saying, it the having these things as a Schedule One substance makes it so it's very difficult to study. You have to get special approval. You have to jump through every hoop there is. Mm-hmm. But people are doing it. And there is, for anyone who's not familiar with the organization MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, they've really been the one since the 1980s pushing for this. And they have self-funded all of these MDMA trials. So they're definitely to thank in terms of a lot of the resurgence of this, a lot of persistence, a lot of not taking no for an answer. And I'll link this back to your question around, okay, how are these things actually being used? Like, you know, before they were made illegal or even in the underground, like there was a lot of therapists that were using MDMA, especially in the eighties. And I believe it was banned in the mid or late eighties, but before that, and when it was a legal substance, people were, were saying, Hey, this helps people open up. This helps people really be vulnerable. It helps people communicate in a way that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to, which is very therapeutic. You know, that is the one of the core healing values of therapy itself, you know, is to be able to express things that have felt unexpressible or difficult or dangerous. And MDMA tends to turn down the amygdala, the emotional fear response in the brain in a way that allows difficult painful things to be talked about in a way that's not so charged or not so difficult or intimidating to work with. And, you know, so, so there's, there's a, a lot of what, what's happening now in the field is proving things that people kind of already know, you know, you kind of have like, but having to do it in a rigorous, controlled yeah. way, which is, is good. You know, yeah, we're good, giving it but... that, quote, official validity <laughs> instead right. of just the, yeah. quote, anecdotal. <laughs> right. Instead of the anecdotal, understanding some of the neurological mechanisms and, and, and things like that as well, you know. But I think it's also important to, to note here that a lot of what's being studied is not just the psychedelic, it's the psychedelic plus therapy. Right. Um, yeah. So that was my and, next question. Yeah. So let's talk about where it is in its place in therapy, because I think it's important to say exactly what you just did. Like, it's not the only tool being used, that if it's being used at all, it is within a an ensemble of other aspects of treatment modalities. So, so let's talk about what that would actually look like in, let's say you were in, you know, going through treatment for PTSD or even like major depressive disorder or any of those that where these come into, into that realm of treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of the way most of the modern studies have been designed, they're looking at psychedelics in the context of them being used as a therapy tool. So it's not just people going and eating mushrooms for, you know, hanging out for six hours and then that's it. There's a a, a preparation process, doing therapy sessions, talking about what, you know, you want to get out of these experiences, you know, what has led you to this point and really developing a therapeutic relationship with a a therapist, you know, to be able to develop trust and, and have a safe container to do these substances in because they heighten things. You know, the, one of the, one of the kind of the, the godfathers of psychedelic therapy, Stanislav Grof, who, who did several thousand LSD sessions in the fifties describes psychedelics as a nonspecific amplifier of psychological processes. So what that means is they really just bring up whatever is underneath the surface, you know, whatever is underlying the depression, whatever is underlying the anxiety. It's those deeper currents of the psyche that psychedelics tend to expose and and bring up and, and allow to be in contact with. And the the preparation process sort of gives people a way to start to touch into those things before it's just out of nowhere, right? It's like you want to have a little bit of... Yeah, so it, I think it forces the patient to get specific, be intentional, create the safe space with their therapist and within themselves. Because like you said, like when you are in an altered state, 
these things come up whether you want them to or not. But when you can set the intention to, yes, I want this to be the focus, I mean, that's how our brains work anyway. It's like, okay, we're pre-paving this way of, I know I'm going to examine this. I know that in the past, either it's been traumatic or all of the levels of what we would consider, quote, negative emotions or less than high vibing. (laughs) And now we're creating this space where I am willingly looking at it, examining it and getting curious. And then also, I think, opening up to an alternative perspective and reaction and having a guide there to sort of like if things start to go wonky or maybe like I start to feel anxious as as this whatever it is scenario is coming back up in my memory field, then the person is there to help guide or, uh, you know, do work there, you know, master trained therapeutic magic, so to speak. Um, does that sound... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Sorry, I didn't yeah, need a question. Absolutely. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And and it, it's very much in alignment. There's an article published last year by Rosalind Watts, who's one of the lead investigators on the psilocybin studies for depression in the UK. She's at Imperial College of London. And maybe we can link this in the, in the notes for anyone who's interested, because it's, mm-hmm. it's one of the best papers I found from from a therapist perspective of like, how would you actually approach, you know, what's the content that's coming up for people in a session? And she has this model that they call the ACE model, the accept, connect, embody model. Okay. And it's exactly that in terms of dealing with, working with whatever happens in that session. It's like, how do you accept what's here? You know, how do you say, all right, this is what's happening for me right now in this moment. How do you connect more deeply with that, with your experience? How do you stay with it? How do you breathe through it? How do you, you know, not turn away from the difficult material and treat this experience as an opportunity to, like you said, be curious about it. And then how do you embody it? How do you, you know, relate to the physical somatic sensations in your body and allow those to be there mm-hmm. and use that as a way to move through whatever the the things that have not been able to be worked through yet. And, and I, I think that for any any practitioner who's interested in working with this or thinking about it, like her, her that paper is just amazing. But it's reminded me of uh of that a lot and so yeah that you know the preparation process is starting to talk about all right you know what do you what kind of framework are we going to bring into the psychedelic experience how are you going to relate to what shows up and just yeah like you said start to to almost practice a little Mm -hmm. bit you know thinking about about that yeah so if from that perspective is there one better than another for examining certain aspects so like if so my background is in Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, very familiar with SSRIs and all of that stuff for better and for worse, because they are not benign substances by any means. But when we are examining, even, you know, down to the bioindividuality of neurotransmitters, we can get specific with these medical substances that are currently used. So can we do that with the psychedelics as well and say, okay, for traumatic experiences, we like to use this one because of its action. For for major depressive or anxiety, we like to use this one over here. Have you noticed that evolving in the field or are we still at the early stages and and figuring that out? I'd say we're still pretty much at the early stages of figuring that out. Um, there's definitely some things that you might lean more towards one or the other, especially depending on kind of what stage someone is at in healing, thinking about something like MDMA, which tends to be less like re-traumatizing, tends to be more suitable for working through like severe active trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of, like I was saying before, it tends to downregulate the fear response in the body. Certainly something like psilocybin might do that, but there tends to be more of a probably a better sequence would be for someone to get out of that active trauma first and then maybe do some psilocybin work after that. Um, Okay. You know, and same thing with, and like with ketamine, you know, it's definitely better for say depression than, you know, like a, like personality disorders, you know, something like you, there's, Mm -hmm. there's uh, aspects of that and probably better for depression than anxiety as well. But I think that's, that's kind of an unknown at this point of like what, 
not only what substance is going to be effective for what, but also what type of therapy, what type of setting, what type of preparation and integration are, are you is going to work best for, for something specific. And, you know, I think the other thing too is like, it's pretty important when talking about symptomology, you know, to not necessarily relate to those symptoms as the same thing as the cause and, and really think about like, is depression fundamentally related to someone not getting their needs met in a specific way and not being able to feel confident asking for what they need in life, you know, and, and like that type of depression could be very well suited to something like psilocybin that might enrich meaning in life or feel more, allow someone to feel more connected versus something like ketamine where, you know, maybe that is someone experiencing more of a physiological type depression where it's more, you know, biochemical in nature, who knows, you know, there's like those subtleties I think are yet to be really parsed out. Yeah. So, okay. So my next question, just while we're in this framework of thinking about it, because then I I do want to take it into some different perspectives also. So microdosing. So where does that, so I, cause I know microdosing has come into the field of conversation with various things and especially in the biohacking world. And so is that an aspect of this approach or is microdosing more what someone would use on their own personal level without a therapist? Yeah. Microdosing is kind of often its own world a little bit in terms of, okay. of that tends to be more off-label people doing it on their own. You know, with ketamine though, there are, you know, there is like the prescription nasal spray that some Mm -hmm. people use as a microdosing kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which does tend to be effective as well. And I think that's just one of those things that a lot of people report good results from. It's pretty arguable whether it's placebo or not. But again, in my book, if you can leverage the placebo to work for you, it's it's just as effective as whatever else. So yes. I'm a big fan of actually, yeah, actually the positive effects of placebo effect. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll say for myself personally, I do find, you know, a little bit of microdosing can be useful for certain types of thinking, certain types of just being really. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think there's a a clear directive on, on really how to do it. I think there's a lot of people that want you to think that there is like a clear way to do microdosing so they can sell the programs and sell the, Uh, you know, little things about it. But (laughs) I I think, but I think the actual science on it and the actual experience is, is like, or there's a lot of unknowns. Mm -hmm. And I think the potentials for for things to go wrong is like a lot lower than doing macro dosing. And again, there's, you know, so in terms of kind of dipping your toe in the water a little bit might be better for some people, but also like can't really expect the same effects and results from a microdose versus a full on dose because right. microdoses don't really create that same type of threshold experience where. Yeah. And I think the goal approaching the two are, are different. And I think that's worth noting too. So if you're, if you're, would be using what, well, let's just call them like full therapeutic doses, then you, again, like this is not something you're doing on your own. You're doing it with a, you know, a guided therapist in some way, shape or form. But if you're microdosing, then maybe you are sort of figuring out what that magical balance point is for you in terms of, creativity, productivity, functioning in a different way in the everyday world. Like you're not taking yourself out or into a different consciousness state, so to speak. (laughs) And so I do, and this brings me to, because you are an epigenetic specialist. So have, have you seen like epigenetically and maybe even like down to the nitty gritty of of some of the, of the testing that we like to do as these precision therapy health coaches. Have you seen those? I know you've developed this, the test for the endocannabinoid system, but have you seen it also in the effects with different psychedelics and, you know, that type of personalization? Yeah. Talking about like nutrigenomics of psychedelics. Yeah. Um, kind of. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There, there's, there's a little bit of a preliminary stuff, but not enough to, you know, make it really worthwhile or useful yet. I, okay. I think that'll change. I think our ability to predict response is going to grow in terms of utility. It's not quite there yet, mm-hmm. but I, I definitely think that that is going to be on the table here in terms of just being able to better predict, you know, what someone is going to respond well to, what dosage, you know, what way to use it for different people. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the state of the field right now, it would be tenuous to say that like that's 
that's available and, and really worthwhile at this point. Yeah. So also too, have you seen like sort of like group therapies offering this or are you seeing it mainly just in the individual realm? You talked a little bit about before, especially with our cultural, I feel like really sort of when I think we're all processing cultural trauma now, I I think we've been doing it for a while, but I think it's at the forefront now. And so I guess that's my question is like, can, especially if you get a group of people together that are working through like the same general issue, could you almost do this in sort of like a guided retreat situation where it's focused around one big intention and sort of cultivated from there? I think that's a really beautiful question. And I'll say a lot of the psychedelic and entheogenic work that's been done historically, you know, outside of the kind of little blip in the timeline of it being now like, oh, let's approve it for West for medical use in this in the system. A lot of that has been done communally. You know, a lot of ceremonies are done as part of a group ritual, as part of something that's embedded within a culture. And so I think there's tremendous utility there. I feel like it's not something that's well understood in terms of from the like peer-reviewed Western perspective of how to do that well. There's one study that I'm aware of that looks that's looked at a group model and it was for older AIDS, men with older men with AIDS treating depression and demoralization. The study came out earlier this year from a group in California. And you know, showed showed pretty positive results doing group therapy and psilocybin sessions. The, the psilocybin sessions themselves were individual, but the pre and post work was done in a group therapy setting. And that's something I'm personally very interested in as well, especially when you look at it from the lens of how psychedelics tend to influence nature relatedness and being aware of like more ecologically aware. And I know this is kind of a jump off in, into the other direction, but I'll, I'll leave it, it back here, here in a second. So, <laughs> so, you know, if we're like, here's, here's my, my framework I'm coming from. Like if we really break down, what is the mess that we've gotten into ourselves into as a species? What are the things that are, is, is really contributing to the mental health crisis on a deep sociocultural, call it even soul level type stuff. The view that humans are not part of nature and that nature is something separate and something different characterizes Western society in a way that is absolutely unique from the rest of human history. Like throughout the rest of human history until the last, you know, really couple hundred years, thousand years in this, you know, tiny subsection of human thought, like we have been integrated and a part of these cycles, a part of the land, a part of that. And we're in a crisis now of disconnection with nature. Like any way you cut it, you look at the, you know, the, the climate crisis, you look at the crisis of, of poverty and, and famine and, and things like that, it, it's an ecological problem. All of these things are stemming from ecological issues and the way that humans relate to the earth we live on. Like, mm-hmm. And there is a pretty profound ability of the psychedelic experience, and this is well-researched, to increase a sense of what that psychological construct is called nature-relatedness, which measures basically how much do you consider yourself to be a part of nature, how much do you consider yourself to be nature itself? And psychedelics tend to reliably increase that, especially when there's nature contact, especially when you're around the woods. And from the, the perspective of like, what can we do to fundamentally change this in a long-term sense? I mean, my view really is that if we need to change our relationship to what we perceive as natural and what we perceive as, as as unnatural and really just get rid of that distinction altogether. And psychedelics have, you know, the ability to blur those boundaries in a felt subjective sense that is more akin to the way that indigenous animist cultures would have felt the way they're we're in relationship with the earth and with each other. And they're not being so much of these distinctions that characterize, you know, the modern Western mindset. And so I think from a group ecotherapy perspective, like getting in touch with not just our relationships to our deeper selves, but, and and I say self with a capital S, you know, like not just our individual ego, but consciousness itself. What does that mean 
how does that relate to psychedelic experiences that are healing, right? Like the healing aspect of itself often is that is what they call the mystical type experience mm-hmm. or the, the sense of being interconnected with all these other aspects of, of consciousness and mm-hmm. the breaking down of where we begin and end seems to have a therapeutic value. And so if we're looking at just, I don't know, long-term trajectory in human history, I feel like the best thing we can possibly do is, is create experiences where it is more apparent that we are in relationship with the earth. We're more, we're in relationship with things that are other than human in a way that is not present in culture. Um, yeah, or is yeah. maybe just having a regenerative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. Right. Yeah, well, and I think yes. actually, yeah, again, I tend to talk about the silver linings of COVID quite a bit, and I think this was one of them. Is that although there was the stress and sort of the insult of the isolationism that COVID brought on, there was also this push and draw to get back outside in nature. Okay, so I need to, you know, for a lot of us that exercise on a regular basis, okay, how am I going to do that? Okay, well, I need to find a way that I'm, I can do that not around people. But also too, I think just people that wouldn't normally, quote, feel the need to go outside when they were forced to be inside. Now they're like, oh, no, I don't want to be stuck inside. I want to be outside more intentionally. And so, yes, I definitely agree with you. There is, for some of us, like you and I, that live close to nature, it's a lot easier. But I think it's also a choice and it can it needs to be intentional because even if you live in a big city like New York, there are ways to get outside and be in touch with nature. And then you have to maybe make a little bit more of a concerted effort to get out of the city more often or whatever you're, you know, your choices are going to be, but it is a choice. And, but I think like you said, like culturally we've gotten so disconnected, I think, and especially if you weren't raised in nature or the woods or by natural, less concrete or like, yeah, more concrete jungle, less nature, so to speak, then it's not as intuitive uh, for some as it is for others. So yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with you. Yeah, I would I would agree with that and I will also challenge you a little bit on on the frame there. You know, okay. in terms of just even describing like either you're near nature or you're in a big city. My point is both of those are nature. Both of those are there there's no distinction. And yeah. the more we continue to to say these things that we've built are not part of nature, the more it furthers that separation and and creates a human world and a nature world. Mm -hmm. And the more, and and the more that we're able to break that down, the better. And it's painful. It's Mm -hmm. really painful to acknowledge that this is what we've done. This is Mm -hmm. where we're at. The cities and the highways and the electrical lines, like we have, we have put that here. And now that's part of, this thing that we call nature, even though okay. we don't, you know, even though like, it's man-made. Like, so yeah, I think that, no, man-made. I think that's yeah a great distinction because yeah, from my perspective, I was thinking like literally from the earth, <laughs> and we are from the earth, <laughs> and right. we made these. So yeah, I can see absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like yeah. That. And, and there's a, I think a a a grieving process that we are constantly fending off, just mm-hmm. by virtue of having to survive this thing that we've created like it, it's it's well, incredibly... and we're taught i think we're taught to not to grieve i think that's definitely yeah. something cultural that i've seen and i work with my clients a lot too is that giving yourself the space to have all the feelings and that's why i sort of cringed earlier when i u- when i even used the phrase negative emotions because I now am of the perspective, none of them are negative. They're just all different. And we need to create the space to for it to be okay to feel the feelings, no matter what the feeling is. Because when we feel it and we process it, then we can move on into our next glorious ensemble of feelings. <laughs> and, right. you know, yeah. that doesn't mean like... I think we've been taught that, you know, you push, you push down, you push out, you suppress all these things, and that somehow prevents something. But then really all of it, all it does is create these not good feeling mental states. 
And then that generally escalate into a full-on something that we don't know how to get out of that we need a therapist help with. And so, yes, like, so talk about like cultural ingrainment of, <laughs> of even how we like deal with grief, sadness, fear, depression, and anxiety, which are also just fe- like we've given them clinical diagnoses, but they're really just feelings and they should just be temporary. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're signposts and indicators to pay attention to. And when we resist those indicators, it's like bodies is going to keep showing them to you again and again. And then that shows up as anxiety or depression yeah. or whatever. And I, I think that what you're describing, that ability to really stay with and honor the full range of, of those things is a lot of the core of a lot of work that happens on, on psychedelics is like there's something about the psychedelic ex- state and experience itself that makes it easier to accept and be with those things. Like it's almost like a supercharged couple hours of being able to just be there with that stuff that normally is too much. And it, it, it kind of expands the capacity to do that. And I mean, really like there's a sense of a much larger force that can hold that, you know, um, that not just you, it's not just you, you know, holding that there's a sense of, of larger love or something that tends to make it easier. On yeah. You feel connected. Like you feel cradled. Um, all those things, whether, it, you know, ideal, like, yes, by nature, whatever that means to you. And, and I think also too, it's, it's funny, like when I think, Sometimes too, if like you choose a psychedelic experience, then you automatically are in this mindset, this is only temporary. So all I have to do is breathe through it and it'll pass. But it's the same concept, even if you weren't in your altered state of consciousness, even, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so (laughs) anything. Right, it's the amplifier. Yeah, exactly. Anything that's uncomfortable in your life, all you have to do is breathe through it and it'll pass. Everything, that's the most constant thing in this realm is things that are being temporary is change. (laughs) So yeah, it's really interesting. Okay. So action steps or um, suggestions, tools, what do our listeners get today? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I think, you know, the the question that comes up is always, well, where can I go do these? Mm -hmm. Uh, How can I, how can I get them? And I'll speak from my perspective as someone who's just kind of been a psychonaut for a long time, someone who likes to explore my own consciousness, I would recommend doing it in a legal setting if you can. And yet at the same time, there's a part of me that says, if you you know, do your research, find the right person to do it with, just be careful. Yeah. So I think just, it's worth stating, like we've talked a little bit about the indigenous cultural background and history. So there is the entire realm out there of, of shaman-mediated healing. And I Mm -hmm. think there, you know, there are substances within that realm based on the specific culture and retreat aspects. So that's there for people to research. And then there's also then the sort of the Western side of things with finding a therapist that you can do this work with. So it's all there. Yeah. What what, what would you like to say to that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say just do your, do your research. Um, Don't rush into something because it seems, you know, like a good idea unless you know who's facilitating and you've got some recommendations. And there's a book called the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide or Handbook, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide that is really worthwhile just in terms of thinking about what you you know, would want out of an experience and gives a lot of considerations for finding a sitter or a guide or just thinking about how to set up an experience that's that's going to be beneficial and helpful and ultimately not harmful, right? You know, right. and, and I'll, I'll say yeah. that the risks are fairly low, but they're there, you know, especially if you are, if you do have something like bipolar or psychosis or something that might get triggered PTSD mm-hmm. included you want to be pretty careful if you have like active active issues going on and or fresh trauma of any kind yeah maybe. yeah especially yeah so yeah you know don't go rushing out to do them just because you heard it might help you feel better you know I'd say really do research and if you do decide to do them listen to the voices of people that have done them many times before and there are are good resources out there uh, in terms of thinking about 
how and when and, and having a therapist to do integration, uh, you know, preparation integration with can be very helpful too. If you're really serious about like wanting to use them for some type of healing purpose, like I would strongly recommend because, you know, a therapist can help you with that. They might not legally be able to help you with the experience, but they can help you prepare and integrate. And that's really essential mm-hmm. in getting the most out of it and, and doing it in a safe way. Yeah. Helping give you, help giving you structure to the process. Yeah. yeah. I like that. So what about just reconnecting with nature and reframing our thoughts about nature? Do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah. That's very much been part of my own practice the past really last year, year and a half, longer than that, but I think more intentionally recently. Like learn, I'll point anyone who's really interested in that to someone named Daniel Four's work, F-O-O-R, really coming at Western psychology with an animist framework, like looking at how how do we integrate what humans have known for millennia that the world is alive and we can have relationships with the land and we can have relationships with the trees and all of that. Like um, he has some of the most approachable work I've seen from like for a Western mind. Like Mm -hmm. he's, he's just packaged things really well. And he's an initiate of a number of different traditions. And I'd say to look at his work uh, if you're really interested in, 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 in that. And I'd say it's uh, it's not an intellectual thing. It's an experiential thing. It's, uh, it's the process of going out every day and saying hi to the birds, you know, and, and experiencing what that's like. You know, the mm-hmm. quality of being in relationship with other than humans is what I'll say. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's thinking about things relationally. Like, am I giving energy and attention to this relationship or am I not? Mm-hmm. And the default mode is to not. So it's it's a process of of cultivating relationship in whatever way makes sense for wherever you are. You know, and if you're in the city, that might mean you know being in a relationship with the clouds or the sky or the you know the few trees that are growing there. But it's still a still able to like access the macrocosm through those little individual small pieces of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and also too, just having that. It's really easy and simple willingness and curiosity to try different things. What's, you know, like breathing with the trees, which could be anywhere from like sitting down at the trunk with your back or even like just putting your hands on a tree trunk and closing your eyes and just taking some deep breaths uh, to full on, you know, going swimming, you know, like really trying on maybe even all the four elements and just getting in tune with your perception of being around them and then being open maybe and curious about, okay, well, what could I be open to receiving from these elements? Uh, Because I think that to me, we're talking about like really like setting the foundation for the basics to someone that does feel totally disconnected or just not like raised in the practice of being in and of nature. So like you said, like you challenged me, you're like, but I would argue that the city is part of nature. (laughs) And so, so like really, okay, then what does it mean to be in tune and connected with that instead of I'm a singular alone person in the middle of the swirling chaos of the city. So you're like, what is that difference? And just start to get curious and maybe journal or, you know, meditate or, you know, there's so many different tools and things and ways to approach it out there and really just figure out what works for you and keep moving and growing from there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like that. It's it's the process of just being curious and saying, all right, you know, what happens if I do an experiment and today I give myself the opportunity to be in relationship with my surroundings differently. Uh, and it, it's that's that frame shift. It's that different attention, different type of attention. Yeah. And like, it's funny that we ended up talking about this because when we started talking about psychedelics, but I feel like this is the natural extension of, of experiences that lead to more connectedness. You know, that's one of the big themes across the board from psychedelic experiences is people feel like they're more connected, whether it's with themselves or with the human species as a whole or with nature or with the cosmos, whatever it is, there tends to be a sense of, oh, I'm not as alone as I thought I was. And my sense of isolation is actually more of an illusion than a reality. And so the, the you know, maybe to just kind of close it out here, like the, the purpose of that integration, you know, the sessions after the secular experience is to take whatever 
happened in that psychedelic experience and and ground it into daily life and actually say, all right, how do we take whatever it was that happened during this moment and translate that into a different way of being? And that sense of being in relationship with the other than humans is like a, a core fundamental thing that tends to happen <laughs> through psychedelics. So that's something that you can cultivate without psychedelics as well. So I feel like that's where the conversation has naturally been going for me because that's been part of my own practice with or without psychedelics. It's something that's enriching and important, I think, on its own, but mm-hmm. that also synthesizes and, and mixes well, plays well with the psychedelics too. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to make sure to include a fantastic list of resources in the show notes of both the the study that David was a co-author of and then anything else that he has suggested. Um, I'm happy to include. And thank you so much, David. And is there anything else you have a burning desire that we haven't talked about yet? <laughs> Ooh, I don't think so. No, this is great. Thanks for, thanks for letting me talk about, yeah nature and what I think about it. Oh, I'm a huge fan of nature. And I think it's also part of our core beingness that we need to reconnect and cultivate more. And and again, with that intentionality and curiosity. So yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, maybe we'll, we'll link this in the, sh- in the show notes too. There's a, there's a researcher named Sam Gandhi who's been tracking this link between nature-relatedness and psychedelics. And so leave that as a maybe as a breadcrumb for some people. I have a feeling okay. you really like some of his work too. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. I always love exploring what you, um, what you send me to for our show notes. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And I'm sure we will have you back because I already have a list of things I want to pick your brain about. And so, but we only have so much time today. So (laughs) thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. 